Hi, I'm Evan from Silver Spring, Maryland. I'm Nicole from Toronto. I'm Jake from Chattanooga. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. It's easy. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Whatever. When Liam Lynch recorded this silly song in his house, he had no idea who'd hear it. But years later, he got a call. I literally was like at home playing Xbox, and the phone rang, and I picked it up, and it was just, is this Liam? And I'm like, yeah, yes? Liam, this is Ringo Starr. <laughs> He's like, I just wanted you to know I really loved your song, and I wanted to come and set up my drums in your bedroom. It's Bullseye. Liam Lynch is the creator of Syphil and Ollie, a pair of sock puppets that were countercultural icons in the late 90s. I'll find out why he's bringing them back after more than a decade. He'll also tell me about the second Beatle he met under completely different, unrelated circumstances. This is Liam Lynch's life. Plus, Jeff Nunberg explores the meaning of a word we can't say on the radio. Suffice it to say that it starts with A and ends with O. Dictionaries don't really give it much attention. Oh, it's a contemptible person. Well, there are a lot of people who are contemptible. Stalin was contemptible, but you probably wouldn't use the A word of him. Um, Osama bin Laden was certainly contemptible. You wouldn't use the A word of him. And comedy group Casper Hauser brings you the news of the day, all of which, by the way, completely made up. All this week on Bullseye, let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week on the show, we're joined by some of our favorite culture critics to recommend stuff that is worth your time. This week, we are joined by the full cast of the Low Times podcast with some rock and roll picks. Daniel Ralston, Tom Sharpling, Maggie Sirota, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Jesse. So, Daniel, I want to start with you and this song by an artist named King Cruel, K-R-U-L-E. The song is called Rock Bottom. I fit rock bottom Ooh, now I'm running away I've made it, babe Think what your lover would say Think in a properly way See, girl, I won't say Until it finds me So this kid is 18 years old. Uh, What's his story, Daniel? Uh, I found out about him about a year and a half ago from a friend of mine in North Carolina who showed me this YouTube video. Uh, At the time, King Cruel was playing under the name Zoo Kid, and he showed me this song called Out Getting Ribs, haunting... This guy has an amazing voice, and at the time he was 16, and this is his, uh, this is his new single. It's uh, set from the Rock Bottom 7-inch. It taps into a lot of things that, that I really like. There's a, well, first of all, there's an overt Britishness, and I'm something of an Anglophile when it comes to these sorts of things. It reminds me of early Billy Bragg, a little bit of Edwin Collins from Orange Juice. It touches all the right buttons for people who like that kind of music, I think. Tom, let's talk about your pick. It's a song by the Mountain Goats, a favorite here at MaximumFun.org, called The Diaz Brothers. Tell me a little bit about it. Well, the Mountain Goats have a new album out, and it's uh, called Transcendental Youth. And it, it's it's kind of, it's not the single off of the album, but it's a song that, that very well could have been the single. And it's kind of got that, that you know, when they write those, uh, those gigantic hook songs, this is one of those hook songs. So, Tom, the Diaz brothers that make up the title of this song, it's sort of an unusual musical reference, at least for a rock act. Look, I don't know what it's a reference to. I like to let lyrics wash over me in a very impressionistic way, Jesse. (laughs) 
Right now, I'm in the discovering phase of my relationship with this song. The Dion Brothers. Maggie, let's talk about Fear of Men's song, Your Side. Let's take a listen. I want to be on your side. Twisted and frantic, did I confess I want to line up by myself. Won't let anybody else come and change my mind. I want to be on your side. Tell me a little bit about it, Maggie. Okay, this is the B-side of a single that is going to be out on October 15th. They're from Brighton, England, and they don't really have much. They just have a couple singles under their belt. They kind of tap into that Cocteau Twins, like 4AD, like indie pop kind of shoegaze sound, which I have a soft spot for. And they're pretty much at the beginning of their career, so it's kind of interesting to catch a band at the start and see where it goes. Well... Maggie Sirota recommends the single from Fear of Men entitled Your Side off their Mosaic 7-inch. Daniel Ralston suggests you check out King Cruel's single Rock Bottom, which is out now on Rinse. And Tom Sharpling recommends the Mountain Goats' new track, The Diaz Brothers. Their album is called Transcendental Youth. You can catch Daniel, Tom, and Maggie on the Low Times podcast. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. For a few short years on MTV, something strange ran late at night. Syphil and Ollie were sock puppets. They chatted, took telephone calls, and sang rock songs. Once in a while, another sock puppet named Precious Roy invaded their airspace to run a home shopping network. Hi, folks, and welcome to the Precious Roy Home Shopping Network. I'm Ollie. Hey, I'm Syphil. You know, folks, if you're like me, hot summer days mean two things. One, long hours in the backseat of a police cruiser. And two, wishing I had some chicken-flavored air conditioning. Oh, yeah, well, you know about the problems I've had spending summer days in the back of a police cruiser. Yeah. Now, folks, I know that most of you are traveling door-to-door farmers. Now, you miss the chicken smell when you're on the road, right? We all miss that chicken smell in the home. Don't leave your chicken smell at home. Bring the smell with you. You can get it, folks. The Precious Roy chicken-flavored air conditioning. Let's take a call. They were the products of the imagination of my guest, Liam Lynch. He built the puppets from stuff that was lying around his house and first videotaped them as a gift to an old friend who became his collaborator on the show. Now, 10 years later, Syphil and Ollie are back on one of the Internet's largest video networks. Here they are on the new show reviewing a made-up video game called Redhead Redemption. Folks, today we're riding the open plains in Redhead Redemption. You're red-headed cowboy John Marshall, seeking vengeance on those who make fun of your dumb red hair. Now, if you're like normal folk and don't have red hair, then consider this game a historical simulator of what it was actually like being a redhead in the Old West. <laughs> it weren't easy, Syphil. Wow, what, uh, what colored hair do I have? Huh? You got green hair? You don't know what co- your own hair color? No, I'm blind. I use echolocation to see. But I, I can't hear colors. What What do you mean you're blind? You drove us here today. Yeah, that's why I turned the uh, car stereo up so loud when I'm driving, so I can see the road. Let's take a look at the game. I'll take a listen, but yeah, okay. <laughs> between, <laughs> between the two runs of Syphil and Ollie, Lynch directed a feature film, Tenacious D in the Pick of Destiny, and created a pioneering video podcast, Lynchland, uh, among many other activities. Liam Lynch, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to well, have you on the show. Thank you for having me. It's really nice to be here. I was just reading uh, an interview that you and your partner did with a Philadelphia alternative newspaper in 1998 or something like that, when oh, when Syphil and Ollie was on MTV. And um, one of you, I honestly don't remember who, I probably should have written it down, 
said that you thought that Syphil and Ollie wasn't funny the way that comedians are funny. Oh, yeah, I said that. It was funny the way that... Friends are funny with each other. Yeah, and I think that is something that you almost never see on television. It's almost, even just listening to those clips, there's something discomforting about it because it's so unusual and really comforting and reassuring because it's so kind of human and humane. Yeah, you know, I think part of it just was born out of Matt and I being friends when we were little kids. And when we got home from school, usually what we did was made tapes. And you'd, we'd have a jam box, and we'd put cassette tapes in, and we would do shows. And it's, there's absolutely no difference in what Sif and Ollie was from what those were, and make up stupid songs and, and stuff like that. And I think that, it's, I think that um, it's one of those things that either you get it or you don't get it. I don't think there's an in-between. If you had a friend like that, you can feel that in Syphilin Ollie. There's such an explosion now of things that you either get or you don't. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's just the internet. I think that comes with um, more people having access to publish um, books and photos and songs and shows. And you know what I mean? I think you're just we're just more aware of all the different tastes, maybe. You, you grew up, you're about 40 and grew up in the 70s in a world where you really had to work to find those things, to find mm-hmm. something that was special in mass media outside of maybe books. Yeah, for me know. it was Doctor Who on PBS. That was one of the first things for me that was like, oh my gosh, like think of the what you can make things like this. Like that's really took me out of Akron, Ohio uh, when I was growing up. Did you think of you could make things like this because in part Doctor Who was such a ramshackle operation? Yeah, it's like, oh my God, Anti-Gravity Man is just bubble wrap? We've got bubble wrap? No, uh, yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was, anybody could recreate one of the 70s episodes of Doctor Who with just whatever they have in their drawers of their kitchen. <laughs> What kind of uh, shows were you making on your home tape recorder? Um, well, I used to collect Mad Magazines. So I was constantly seeing these spoofs of programs, short skits. And sometimes um, early on when I was really little, my we would read and try to act out Mad Magazine skits like they were scripts. And then that just turned into... And then when I started playing guitar, I started making up songs immediately. And then um, that turned into just really random shows and fake commercials. Really similar to Syphilin Ollie. Like, I have just... That part of my mind never evolved out of that state <laughs> that that of doing that. And, you know, it's it's that type of fun. You know, it's a type of fun. It was always my entertainment. Do you remember any any of the things that you made in particular? Do you have do any remember, of the tapes? Yeah, I do remember one um, that it was um, it was a commercial. The guy's name was Roger Blaggett, and it was for uh, learn how to play harmonica. Uh-huh. Um, his harmonica playing system, learn how to play harmonica, and it came with a set of stickers for different notes that you stuck on your lips. <laughs> and it's like it's easy just match the note to your lips you know you guys, so you basically had all these stickers all over your mouth and you lined them up with the right color on the harmonica it's bullseye i'm jesse thorne my guest is writer director and musician liam lynch he created the sock puppet show syphil and ollie which was much beloved late at night on mtv in the late 90s lynch has just revived the duo after a decade off the air I, I remember being intimidated at the idea of writing jokes as a kid. That 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 the I, I could imagine saying something funny, but I couldn't imagine writing something that was coherent and like that terrified me. That prospect terrified still, me. Still terrifies me. Still, I don't. I've never written a joke. I I've always just gone for for weird. You know, and also I, my mind doesn't think of things in joke terms. I don't think of punchlines. I think of just like mixes of things I see or, or you know, it, it's it, it, I've never sort of aimed at writing jokes. Writing jokes is really an art and it's really it's really tough to write jokes. I've always been about character types are funny to me and trying to emulate things is funny to me. And uh 
it's funny because when I would, if I tried to be funny or tried to write jokes or try to do please people in writing, um, I wouldn't, I would fail terribly and miserably. And, but it's funny when you do what is that thing you're probably hiding from people or that thing that feels the most natural to you, that's what you'll get the best response from always. And, and so I've always just kind of gone with that. Can you give me an example of a time that you just made something that felt that way to you? Well, you know, firstly, I should say that I, I constantly make things. And when I make things, they I don't care if it's a success or not. It's, it has to be a success for me. And for every 50 things I make, one of those things will become a, a success in some way or, or get recognition or will end up getting me a job that pays my bills and stuff. So, you know, United States of Whatever is a good example. That song, which I made at home, for me, it was an improv. It was a, it was a one take. I never decided what the song was going to be. That's why I talked during the verses, because I hadn't even written down what I was going to say. And um, that's also why, as the song goes on, I get more descriptive each verse because I start realizing what it is I'm making as I'm making it. I went down to the beach and saw Kiki. She was all like, eh, and I'm like, whatever. Then this chick comes up to me and she's all like, hey, aren't you that dude? And I'm like, yeah, whatever. So later, I'm, I'm at the pool hall and this girl comes up and she's all like, oh, and I'm like, yeah, whatever. You know, I made that for fun and I was just making a really annoying song for myself to listen to in my car. I like the idea of you driving around listening to your songs. Every musician drives around listening to their own songs. But you that's usually because you're thinking about mixes or what you're going to change. Made, I think I printed a thousand CDs and I put them on my website. And then I never thought about it ever again. And then it's 3 a.m. I'm on the corner wearing my leather. This dude comes up and he's like, hey, punk. I'm like, yeah, whatever. Then I'm throwing dice in the alley. Officer Leroy comes up and he's like, hey, I thought I told you. And I'm like, yeah, what up? And then up comes Zaffo. I'm like, yo, Zaffo, what's up? He's like, Dud. I'm like, that's cool. Because this is my United States or whatever. And this is my United States or whatever. And then, like four years later, it's number nine in the UK. <laughs> and what had happened, I never did anything. Somebody had bought a CD, made a copy for a friend. That friend made a copy for a friend. That, and it, that went on for four years until it made a copy, made it to somebody who happened to be a BBC DJ. And he played it, and the switchboard lit up, so we played it again. He kept playing it, then the other stations started seeing it on the call list. There was no official release, so every radio station was playing a burned copy from this one DJ. So that's like a thing of me following my dumb idea and doing something that comes naturally to me, and then that coming back. And then it went, they wanted me to be on top of the pops, and I didn't <laughs> want to be on top of the pops, and... I was Why on, didn't you want to be on top of the pops? I was on tour with no doubt filming them. I was helping them make a DVD for their live show, and I was doing interviews with them. And so I was just doing this job. I'm like, I can't do that. So I went. Uh, we were back in LA, and I, I um, made a video at home. I was like, I'll make them a music video and send them a music video. So I made the video for United States or whatever, and then just mailed that to them. I just did it to appease Top of the Pops, and. Um, but the coolest thing of all about that is that I got in the Guinness Book of World Records, which I found out from somebody online emailed me like from England or somewhere like, nice one, mate. That, you know, so I was looking at Guinness Book of World Records in line at the grocery store. Nice. And I'm like, what are you <laughs> yeah, I'm talking sorry? about? And so I went on Amazon and I bought a guinness book of world records and there's i'm in there and there's like there was my photo and everything for like the shortest song to go top 10 (laughs) in the uk and so um and there's i couldn't believe it and it was it was one of those things where i got that it was like it wasn't like the big thin guinness book that comes out now it was like the thick almanac-y looking one and like i literally 
took it out of the envelope, and when I went to open it, I opened it to the exact page I was on, <laughs> just by, you know, r- random chaos theory of the universe. And I was just like, that is weird. So I still, like, you know, I'm friends with a lot of people that are, I got a lot of really famous friends. Now, I, I'm friends with a lot of musicians, a lot of, you know, people, that well-known musicians, and they always, and some of them are just insanely successful, and I can just say, yeah, they've got a lot of, like, gold records on their walls, and I'm like, yeah, but, you know, you don't got a world record. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> so I, that's, like, the only thing I can rub in their face. And if you hate the song, at least it's only a minute, 26 seconds long. So it's over <laughs> quick. I had to go on David Letterman and do that song. And I was waiting before to go out. And somebody came up to the dressing room and said, Dave would like the song to be longer. <laughs> and I was like, what do you, what do you mean? And they're like, is there any way you can make it longer? I'm like, I go on in like 10 minutes. I, and I had rehearsed it with his band because I don't have a band. And um, I was like, well, do you, do you want me to, could, I could make up a verse about Dave or something. She's like, no. <laughs> I was like, well, then, no, I can't. <laughs> then one day I got a phone call. I literally was like at home playing Xbox. And the phone rang and I picked it up and it was just, is this Liam? And I'm like, yeah, yes. Liam, this is Ringo Starr. <laughs> He's like, I just wanted you to know I really loved your song. And I wanted to come and set up my drums in your bedroom. <laughs> and so Ringo formed a record label so that I could release the album in America. <laughs> and so he made an, a label. Then he played drums on the album. And... Which he's so which I, ridiculous that he did that, but it was awesome, and um, I think he liked the spirit of it all. After a break, Liam Lynch meets yet another Beatle. Plus, why Liam thought it was time to bring back Syphil and Ollie. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI Public Radio International. Mark your calendars for October 15th, Max Fun Day. We're going to have Google Hangouts and Ask Me Anythings and special bonus content. We're going to be giving food to needy families. It's going to be spectacular. If you're not already a donor to MaximumFun.org, I don't reasonably see a path for you through October 15th, where at the end of it, you are not a donor to MaximumFun.org, because it is going to be quite the hullabaloo. You can find more information at MaximumFun.org slash MaxFunDay. We'll see you October 15th. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is writer, director, and musician Liam Lynch. He created the sock puppet show Syphil and Ollie, which was much beloved late at night on MTV in the late 90s. Lynch has just revived the duo after a decade off the air. You alluded to the fact that you studied with Paul McCartney. He ran or runs this performing arts uh, school. Liverpool um, Institute of Performing Arts. And um, I was in the first year that it started. And he bought, his, he bought the, his school that he went to. He and George were students at the school. It's connected to the art building that John Lennon and Stuart Sutcliffe went to. And... Um, he purchased it because I think it was just going to be torn down or something. And the queen put in whatever he was willing to put in and, and they made this school. And I, um, I was in the very first year. So I was the first graduating class of this school. That's pretty um, solid when you have a matching grant from the queen. Yeah, that is pretty cool. Or from Um, Paul McCartney. And then he got his sir back. He got his sir back. Yeah. So when I had classes with him, it was in a room exactly like we're in right now, which is folks were in a little soundproof vocal booth right now and the classes were one-on-one so it was just me and paul mccartney in a room which was like being with a guy that looked exactly like paul mccartney (laughs) so and i was always so tired because i'd stay up all night that i didn't really the whole it was like funny you know i was like god dude you look so much like paul mccartney were you able to actually I mean, I, when I imagine the being in a room getting a music lesson of any kind from Paul McCartney, 
it, I just imagine it bouncing off of me. Like I can't imagine learning anything from Paul McCartney. It did wasn't, you? It wasn't, did you learn anything well, from the, the experience? Fir- the first thing that he said was, "Nobody can tell you how to write a song." And he said that every he never has ever known which one of of his songs were the ones that everybody would like, and the ones that he thought were his greatest song of all times were it's like people just didn't even care, you know. And the ones that he wasn't sure about end up being you know these huge mega hits. But he, um, you know, so he wasn't like, I'm going to tell you how to do it. Um, but what I did learn was about a, a spirit of things and um, a way of thinking about things. It was more about that, I think. But I did, we would play and, together and and, um, and he was incredibly thoughtful and helpful and... Um, he didn't have to do that. This was a time during the time when, while Linda McCartney was dying and, and I think it was a really emotional time for him to be going in and, you know, spending time with some kids, you know, at, you know, but he did it and I, it was cool. He He's a really complicated person. He is like, he's like, he might be peace signs and smiles on the outside, but that dude is complicated. And, um, and he's got a really intense energy you feel like you're like you're near a power station when you're near him. And I, I think he's just got his, um, I think he's had so much um, people trying to take energy out of him and away from him that he has almost like this calloused aura that he has a bubble around him, I think, of protect him from other people's energies. And when you're with him, when you're in that bubble and you're actually near him, it feels very different from when you're 10 feet away from him. It's bizarre. But he he was great, and he you know the, one of the days I got there and it was raining outside, and he was just sitting looking out the window, and, and in my head I was imagining you know he probably just came from the hospital here to here, like, and you could tell he was, and and another thing too is that he's in a school, he probably looked out that same window as a boy pre Beetle, and when he was in school in that building, at as a boy, his mother was dying of breast cancer. His mother died of breast cancer, and now here he was. He owned the school, post Beatle, and his wife and love of his life is dying of breast cancer. So I think that he was in a weird time warp of emotions, period. Um, but he was just gazing out the window, and I went in, and I could tell he needed a moment. I put my guitar down, and I just stood by the window, and we just looked outside at the rain. And then, like, and there's part of you in the back of your mind thinking, seriously, honestly, there is some super crazy like Japanese beetle fanatic that would literally pay $4 million to do what I'm doing right now. Like just look at rain with Paul McCartney. But, um, and so then he kind of snapped out of it and smiled. And, and I said, and I was, ta- I asked him, always asked him about Beatles. I asked him to join a Beatles cover band with me. <laughs> and I said, and I told him that I said the very first day I met him, I said, you play drums, right? And he's like, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I like to play the skins or whatever he said. I forget what he said. But, um, and, and he said, I was like, well, I don't know if you're interested, but I'm actually forming a Beatles cover band. And I know you're familiar with their work, obviously, but I need somebody to play Ringo. And I was wondering if you'd be, in, and he just went, watch it, lad. And he, but I think he knew right away that I wasn't like, he thought it was funny. So we were sitting there, and I said, you know, what happened? I said, did you take piano lessons while you're in the Beatles? Because, you know, you started out as the guitarist, and then you became the bass player. And then in the end, you were just like the piano man. It was all like, hey, Jude, and everything was at the piano. And he was like, you know, no, actually, you know, the the piano's my first instrument. My, my, you know, my mom was a piano teacher. So so he's like, and he goes, I wrote when I'm 64 when I was 13. <laughs> and then he went over, and he sat down at the piano. I'm in a room that's probably six foot by six foot with Paul McCartney and a piano in two chairs. And he played the entire song when I'm 64 for me. And I'm sitting there like, what is happening right now? I'm like, but what was crazy was hearing his voice come out of him in a room. Cause, cause even if you see him live, it's through a microphone, through speakers, through compression, through all this stuff. You listen to the albums, it's a studio recording, and most of their albums are playing at weird various speeds, so their voices have different weird pitches to match up tracks. And to hear the instrument in the room, it was like hearing 
I imagine a Stradivarius being played right next to your face. Like to hear his vocal cords sounded so much more comfortable singing rather than um, talking. It's like it was his voice is amazing. Like you, you know, it's like it gets you, it makes your hairs raise up on end when you hear it coming out of him. And then he played the whole song, and he was looking at the piano the whole time. And I'm standing there looking over the piano, watching him play it. And he only looked up at me on, like, he's playing, and then he, his eyes, those big, heavy, puppy eyes, look up at me on Vera, Chuck, and Dave. <laughs> but <Ba-do, ba-do, ba-do. laughs> That was the only part. But anyways, yeah. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Liam Lynch, is a sock puppet auteur with uh, his show Siffel and Ollie and a director and a musician. Let's actually take a listen to some of his music uh, that isn't comedy music. This is his band, The Sweet Electric, with A Hero Only Tries. Oh, wow. I've made five or six music videos as I mean I play all the members and um, so it's pretty weird and what it is is me just having absolute fun unabashedly everything I enjoy about David Bowie and T-Rex and the Beatles in a in a it's a sandbox of those types of sounds and melodies Can I ask you this question? Mark Duplass was on the show a year or so, six months ago maybe, and he was talking about making movies with his brother and that one of the most important lessons he learned as a filmmaker was to get to something that he was happy with, even if it wasn't something that was perfect. Um, Oh, yeah, for sure. And that was the only way that he could make something. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. You have to be happy with it. It doesn't matter. There is no perfect because there isn't a right way. Someone might look at something and be like, mm, it needs the pace needs to be quicker. Another person might be like, you know, might feel the exact opposite of that. You can't make anything perfect for someone else's ideals or ideas. That's why you just have to make things that make you happy, however they are. And, you know, and I'm also very, um, I make things very fast and recklessly like um and so it's always constantly kind of like you know building a model car as fast as you can without reading the instructions that's kind of the way that i go about making whatever it is and um but that's the joy for me is like the the drive like that excitement drive of like oh my gosh i'm making this and now it's starting to look like that and i just gotta get it to here and so i'll stay up for days making these shots just because it's making me happy and I don't scrutinize the details. And, you know, maybe my work would be better if I did. But also a lot of my successes never would have happened if I had. The rights to Syphil and Ali reverted back to you. Three years after it went off the air. Yeah. And so you've you've had them, you've controlled Syphil and Ali for a while. Um, you don't control the episodes that you made for MTV. Right. But you do control the characters. That's right, yeah. Why did you want to uh, bring them back out again? Why did What was it that... Part of it was um, seeing them on YouTube. Um, and when they went up on YouTube, people have posted all the episodes from MTV on YouTube. And um, seeing them just looking so bad and the audio being so bad, I just, you know... I wanted to make something new. I wanted some stuff that was in HD. I wanted some stuff that sound that looked, you know, that looked better. It was a way of doing it, um, kind of like by the people for the people in a way, and and it was a way of making it in today's world more cable access. Just as many people can see a, a video of a kitten falling off a kitchen counter as they will an episode of Lost, and you have to give them equal respect. I think um, it doesn't matter if people 
spent their time to see one thing. It doesn't matter if it's on a television network anymore. I have immense respect for that lamb that's running through the hallway. Oh, I love that one. He's slipping. I love that one. It's the cutest thing in the world. Um, Yeah, that is so funny. But um, so anyways, you know, those, I, I just wanted to make Siphonolly again as, as, as simple as that it sounds. And, um, and I didn't want to do it on networks. I didn't want to go and pitch it to, to TV networks. You know, I wanted to make it for fun. <laughs> well, Liam, thank you so much for taking the time. to Thank be you for having it me. Really a pleasure. It was really fun to, to be here. And I'm just really, uh, honored that you asked me to come down and talk you can find the new episodes of liam lynch's uh syphil and ollie on youtube if you just search for syphil and ollie you'll be able to find them um you you can find liam lynch online at liamlynch.net or you can find him on twitter at lynchland it's bullseye i'm jesse thorne look There's a lot of information and news out there. Sometimes it's hard to sift fact from fiction. That's why I think that this news update from Casper Hauser will put your mind at ease, because no sifting necessary. They made it all up. Let's go to the news. With your Casper Hauser news update, I'm Richard Chlorfenaramine. Angela Snashes is in the bathroom. First, we have breaking news tonight. The bridge between Lakeview and Pendleman is out, so motorists who usually take that route are asked to please build up enough speed to jump their cars to the other side. And a creature spotted in a swamp near Kern County may finally have been identified. Based on descriptions by witnesses, says animologist Maurice Sherwood-Lee, it was probably just a swamp creature. And why do planes hit so many birds? Well, to put it simply, says area professor Gabriel John Weissert, they occupy the same environment. It doesn't have to be birds, he says. If jumbo jets mainly flew in the jungle, they'd be hitting monkeys. But for now, he says, just be careful. And has Atlantis finally been found? No, but a black and white tabby kitten has near the Southfield Pier. Please call the local SPCA if you have any information about the lost city of Atlantis. And yo-yo champion Billy Briggs is living it up in Hawaii after winning a staggering 10th world title last week. He's enjoying putting the yo-yo aside for a bit. Keep me away from anything like a yo-yo for a few days, he says. Yo-yo cakes, yo-yo shapes, anything that looks like a yo-yo, like a barbell. He says it won't be too long, however, before he's ready to start stressing again with the spinning string-hung gizmo. And construction workers digging a grave near St. Malloy's Church uncovered a startling surprise, a vast network of underground tubes and wires that are believed to be the city's water and electrical systems. They are in the process of accidentally chopping them up. An ancient book, a missing professor, and a golden amulet? Sounds like the beginnings of quite a mystery. One that was thankfully solved on Saturday when Professor Linda Roth showed up at 7-Eleven after being locked in a porta potty after dropping her brooch in there while reading The Hobbit. And a father and son made history sending one of the boys' toy trains 18 miles into space on a weather balloon and beaming back breathtaking pictures that have taken the internet by storm. The images, mostly of the family's trip to Shasta in 1989, appear to show the boy's Uncle Toby looking at his own b**** with a shaving mirror. With your Casper Hauser News Update, I'm Richard Chlorfenaramine. Good night. The sketch group Casper Hauser are based in San Francisco. Their books include Weddings of the Times, Obama's Blackberry, and the forthcoming Earn Your MBA on the Toilet. You can find the Casper Hauser Comedy Podcast at our site, MaximumFun.org. After a break, Jeff Nunberg explores the meaning of a word that we cannot say on this program. So we will say only that it starts with A, and it means someone who's a a real son of a gun. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. Hey, it's Jesse. You probably already know from my promo earlier in the program that October 15th is our first ever Max Fun Day. Now, some of you may already be MaximumFun.org donors, and you're thinking Max Fun Day has no relevance to you. 
You could not be more wrong because October 15th, Max Funday is the day that you trick all of your friends. Wait, trick, convince all of your friends, real life and virtual to become MaximumFun.org donors. You know they like the shows already. You know they're trying to skip out on giving us money. Make them pay. I don't know how you would make them pay. Maybe like uh, one of those water bucket at the top of a door jam things. <laughs> or maybe just use the hashtag MaxFunDay on Twitter or post about it on Facebook or something like that. We'll have lots of cool stuff for you, whether you're a new donor or an existing donor. So go to MaximumFun.org slash MaxFunDay and mark your calendar for October 15th. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Jeffrey Nunberg, is best known to public radio listeners as Fresh Air's resident linguist. He also teaches at Berkeley, was a longtime usage editor for American Heritage, right? Am I remembering that the, correctly? The chair of the usage panel. The chair of the title, usage yes. panel. Right. Uh, and he has often written about language as it relates to politics. His new book is sort of about that and sort of about a bunch of other stuff. It's called Ascent of the A-Word. And um, I'm going to say the full title now, which I guess we'll have to bleep, but it's called Ascent of the A-Word, Holism, the First 60 Years. Uh, Jeff, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. So this book is about the A-Word. If you don't know what the A-Word is, um, it rhymes with bass bowl, which is also a lunch special at KFC. Right. And you write that, that that word, the A word, is about more than just what it is defined as in dictionary. So maybe you could tell us what it's defined as in a dictionary and then why that meaning isn't its actual meaning. Well, it, it's, it's, it's one of those words I think of as, as being so beneath our consideration. We use it. We, we don't really give it much thought. Uh, if you ask people what it means, they're, they're going to give you a list of names, not, not a dictionary entry. And even as, I, as I, I noted in the book, dictionaries don't really give it much attention. They, oh, it's a contemptible person, the Oxford English Dictionary. Well, there are a lot of people who are contemptible. Stalin was contemptible, but you probably wouldn't use the A word of him. Um, Osama bin Laden was certainly contemptible. You wouldn't use the A word of him. In fact, I, when you were describing the variety of people that were contemptible that you wouldn't d- describe as an A word, I was thinking of alternative comedy to to humanize and personalize something so g- grandly evil is actually like a common joke. It, like to say something like calling uh, calling Stalin an a hole mm-hmm. is is so incongruous as to be funny on stage. And it's precisely incongruous, if you'll forgive me, delving into the comedy. But uh, it's precisely incongruous because it's a word we use for members of our own tribe, for people we're familiar with. We we have uh, familiarity and contempt are connected, proverbially in English, and. And to use the A word of somebody is to suggest not that just that that person's contemptible, but that he's, and I'll, we can talk about why it's he, he's the jerk down the block who gets on your case when you don't take your garbage out in the morning or something. He, he's, um, he's a very specific type. Uh, you, can, you can earn the A word label uh, for cheating on your wife, for example, probably not for cheating on your income tax. You can earn it for um, uh, cutting off somebody in a left turn lane, but maybe not for texting while you drive. Uh, if... Uh, you can earn it for uh, stealing ideas from your colleagues, maybe not from plagiarizing from a published book. If, if George W. Bush earned the label, which some people think he did, uh, it wasn't for anything he said about uh, weapons of mass destruction. It was for the way he smirked at the press. So it has a much, much more specific meaning than the dictionaries or your firsthand intuitions would, would, would let you think. And it, it, it has a specific meaning. And it's a word that appears in a language at a certain point. It's a word with a meaning that we've never really had. It, it covers ground that other words covered, but they're united in a new way by this word. And, and, and the point I wanted to make in the book is that that's a signal of very basic changes in our social attitudes. The word is born uh, in World War II in the mouths of GIs uh, who use it for officious, overbearing officers uh, above all. The first military leader to be labeled with a word by both his men and his superiors is George Patton, not surprisingly, if you know the real Patton, not just the movie Patton. So the classic a-hole that you describe in this book is a guy who 
uh, has first has has a lot of airline points and cuts the line at the airline ticket counter when somebody's flight gets uh, delayed and asks for special treatment. And everyone in the line says, "Oh, what an a word that guy is." Right? They don't say how uncivil. Yeah, uh, it's it's the word that we instinctively use as a reproach for incivility. It's also an uncivil word. And I think the interesting thing about this word is that it both instances this incivility that everybody's worried about, and it also instances the concern about incivility that everybody expresses. And and it's an indication of how much those two are wrapped up with each other and how much we are ourselves the problem. There's a sort of blithe self-regard that's involved in the the particular rude, arrogant incivilities that an that an a word exemplifies. Uh, uh, blithe self-regard is very good. I think of it as obtuseness. The the example I give actually of the the perfect example is a, a real story that a friend of mine told me. He's a Texan. He's in New York on nine eleven. He's freaked out as a lot of people are. He's got to get home to his family. He gets money from an ATM. He goes over to the Hertz office on West 43rd Street. There's a huge crowd of people there with the same thought he has. The clerks are beleaguered. Uh, This little guy walks in, pushes to the front of the room, pulls out his wallet and says, excuse me, where's the gold card line? (laughs) Everybody in that room was thinking the same three-word sentence uh, that ended with with the A word. Um, And the interesting thing about this is the extraordinary obtuseness of imagining that you're the credential you have in your wallet, a little gold card, trumps the extraordinary events of that day. It's an, an obtuseness. Uh, it's, it's imagining that your qualification entitles you to things that it doesn't entitle you to. And moreover, it's not really malignant. There's nothing m- evil or mean about this guy. He's not hurting anybody. Uh, he's just being a jerk in this case. And, and in particular, this kind of obtuse person who merits the A-word. The A-word is also fundamentally vulgar because it's about butts. And I, I, wonder if, uh, I wonder if you could tell me what the significance of that fact is. Because heel and bounder and cat and scoundrel and all of those other words, none of them have anything to do with what in, in broadcasting standards are called sec- sexual and excretory functions, right? Right, right The right. things besides blasphemy that you can't do on the, on the public airwaves, um, cad, bounder, all those things are not about that. There's no talk about people's uh, special places. So to, to say the A-word is to violate the kind of inhibition that you learn very early. Uh, it's, it, the inhibition about using these words shows up by the time you're five and you're taking a salacious pleasure in saying shampoo. <laughs> <laughs> now, that, that pleasure and the idea that there's a dirty word and you get to say it here uh, and, 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 and the way in which the, 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 te- the stigma is attached to the very syllable so that it, it's retained even if you embed that syllable in, in another word. All of those principles you've learned by the time you're four or five. And the idea that, well, if we could overcome our bourgeois hang-ups with these words, wouldn't be, that, it's like trying to overcome the other stuff you learned when you're four or five. It's, it can't be done. And for that reason, when I use that word of somebody, uh, I might be doing several. If I use it to somebody's face, I'm saying, you are so contemptible that I feel no obligation to... to respect the inhibitions and conventions that normally apply in this situation, or my my emotions are so strong that they're overcoming those inhibitions. And I'm not simply saying that. I'm demonstrating it by breaking a rule, by breaking a, 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 a very basic inhibition. That's why the word creates also a kind of solidarity. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the linguist Jeff Nunberg. His new book is called Ascent of the A-Word. He traces how a specific piece of slang used by servicemen in the Second World War made its way to the general population and what it means for all of us. One of the interesting things to me about uh, the rise of this word is the timing, which you write about very eloquently in the book, which is that it is created during World War II, but it really gets going in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And it's parallel to uh, it's parallel to a couple of big cultural movements, but one of them is that I think the the vulgarity of the A word is tied in with the vulgarity of other 
longshoreman's parlance to use a word to use a phrase that is often used and frankly i am not sure i know what a longshoreman is (laughs) that is where i know what longshoreman's parlance is i know it has something to do with docks but that's about it so it's in you know 1970 people are using young people are using vulgar language in the same way that they were growing their hair long or not wearing neckties um, it both rejects the authority of those in authority, the people who say you shouldn't use vulgar language, and identifies them, whether or not they are of the proletariat, with the proletariat in a way that is important for their value systems. Yeah, no, I think it's very well put. Uh, the, the, the word is used in the 60s. Uh, I, when I was an undergraduate in the 60s, people used the word. I thought it was kind of cool to use the word, which, which indicates that it, it wasn't quite there yet. Uh, the 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 movement left uses it a lot and and swearing in general has that political subversive uh, meaning if you think of the scene in Woodstock uh where country joe mcdonald of country joe and the fish uh is singing and he begins he's singing that song uh, feel like i'm fixing to die rag you know one two three what are we fighting for who gives scares i don't give a damn next step is vietnam and he starts off uh with a call and a response The mere mention of that word, uh, what became a political act in, in 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 that context. You didn't have to say that word of anybody. Didn't need an object. Just the verb alone would do it. By the seventies, the lifestyle and behavior and values that had been subversive and challenging to the established order in the sixties are domesticated and given a kind of conventional. Uh, non-conventional meaning, so to speak. So the long hair that was really troubling on the hippies, if you, you read those Wall Street Journal editorials that are unslovenly long hair, is now just a feature of everybody in the high school yearbook, long hair on men. Jeans. Uh, everybody's wearing jeans to the point where by the, by the mid-'70s, people are wearing, you know, Gloria Vanderbilt is making jeans for, 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 for people. Uh, the informality of address. This is when people start calling their professors Bob, you know. And and uh, the use of this vulgar language becomes a conventional way of indicating that you're not bound by these uptight, formal, bourgeois proprieties, even in, in the midst of them, even if you're working for a big corporation. You know, when you wrote about Country Joe's call and response at Woodstock, what that F-U-C dot 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 made me think of more than anything else is the rebranding of the clothing retailer The French Connection into F-C-U-K in order to get, like, what's left of that charge in the probably literally the least subversive context imaginable. Right. No, it's interesting to me. You know, for this language to work, when you learn this language, when you're a kid, you have to learn two things to learn with these. First of all, you have to know, you have to be told that we don't say those words. One does not say those words. And then you have to hear people saying the words, ideally the same people. You know, the best thing is to hear it from your – to be told we don't say them and then to hear your dad saying it. You know, that, then you really learn the lesson about it. And then you can take that salacious pleasure in the schoolyard of saying it, knowing you're, 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 you're breaking a rule. And we need both. We need the prudes. Uh, we need that town in Massachusetts a while ago that passed a law against public profanity. Everybody's indignant. But you know, it's great to know those people are out there because <laughs> those are the people we have in mind when we use the words. If there were no such people left out there, we couldn't have the pleasure of, of using the words, knowing how indignant it made them. And Dancing's no fun without footloose laws. Right. <laughs> right. And, and, and so that, that play between the inhibition and the violation of the inhibition is at, at the core of what these words do for us. I went to college at uh, the University of California in Santa Cruz and grew up in San Francisco. And um, in in my time in perhaps the two most liberal places in the entire world, <laughs> like probably even even more than like Maoist Beijing, um, I saw a lot of the kind of political discourse that you describe in this book, and it strikes me that there are slightly different tones to the a-holism of, uh, of a conservative and the a-holism of a liberal when the, those two a-holisms are clashing. That snobs versus slobs tone has been a really important part of uh, why conservatives have, and have in some cases announced that they don't need to care about anything that liberals have to say because they're all 
effete ivory tower, blah, 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 and so on and so forth. And but the but on the left, there's something there's something there's like a there's a slightly different but no less virulent version of a holism. Yeah, no. And in, 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 in some ways, they almost they almost come together. Uh, the for the right, the a-holes are these pretentious, effete, self-important, out of touch, West Side Hollywood academic media liberals uh, right. Who, who, as you say, don't have to be paid anywhere. They're contemptible. You don't have to pay any, any, any respect to them. You can say ridiculous things. Uh, in fact, the point of the game often is just to take pleasure at the thought of the indignation that you're engendering in those people. When Ann Coulter says the 9-11 widows were enjoying their husband's deaths, I mean, she doesn't care about those women. It's not, it's not as if she, she cares one way or the other, but she, she knows how indignant they're going to be. Hillary Clinton says heartless. You know, it's exactly the reaction she's looking for. And the people listening to her take pleasure in the thought of how outrageous she's being and how you can get away with being outrageous. There is a pleasure in this. I mean, that's that's you're describing what Rush Limbaugh has done to has made him the most popular radio personality in the world for the last or in the United States for the last 20 years, that he is constantly engaged in a self-aware basically act of bear baiting, um, you know, that that he does not care about the literal meaning of what he's saying because the abstract, the abstracted or, you know, you could say satirical meaning in some cases is just to upset people, is just to demonstrate, look at these stupid people and what they get upset about. And, and, and to take pleasure in that as, 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 I mean, the principle that we learn from Dirty Harry is that we can take an enormous pleasure in watching somebody do really terrible things to people who have it coming. And and that's what Dirty Harry does. It's what Woody Allen does in his way or John Belushi does in his way. And it's what Rush Limbaugh or Ann Coulter does. Now, you're talking about the left. Yeah, it's there on the left as well. I, I certainly don't think that the distribution of people who merit this label respects political boundaries, though the right tends to be better organized about it. So I, I want to ask you about the male-female uh, part of this. A-hole uh, and the A-word in general is um, overwhelmingly attached to men rather than women. So maybe you could tell me why you think that is, what are the factors that lead into that, and whether there are other words that we use for women, whether they mean the same thing. Yeah, I think there are two reasons. One of them's legitimate and the other's not. Um, the first is that why do we uh, use the A-word more of men than women? Because more men deserve it. (laughs) Because why? Because it tends to be used to people who have higher status. And in this world, it's still the case that a a disproportionate number of the people who are bosses and uh, have authority and so on are men. That makes sense. Uh, It's also the case that men tend to be the ones who confuse their status with their sense of self. They're the ones who go around saying, do you know who I am? And, of course, people who say, do you know who I am? Almost never know themselves. But but they imagine – take the boss in the office in both the American and British versions who who's a perfect example of this. And, again, a perfect example because he's really not maligned. There's nothing nasty about him or mean-spirited. He's just clueless and obtuse about his own his own role. Uh, he, he's an example of that, somebody who, who thinks that his status as the boss entitles him to meddle in the lives of his employees or demand things of him that he really doesn't have a right to demand and so on. On the other hand, it's often the case that when a, a man does something that would merit that label, uh, yelling at the gate agent for not giving him an upgrade, when we see a woman do, doing the same thing, we don't use the same label. We call her a bitch. As if suddenly this didn't have to do with a swollen sense of entitlement. Which, which is usually what it is, but rather with some primordial feminine malevolence that's, you know, inborn and so on. It becomes a sex-linked thing. Well, it's not a sex-linked thing. Uh, w- women are capable of the same swollen sense of entitlement as men. And if it's, yeah, it's not like uh, the, the other, some of the other names based on the, 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 the male member, which where, where, the, where the, this restriction to men is, is understandable. So I think we should use the A word for women more than we do. I, look, if... if uh, <laughs> that's going to be our poll quote. <laughs> if... if look, if Eddie Fisher merits the A-word label for uh, d- ditching Debbie Reynolds for Elizabeth Taylor, why does she not get the label when she ditches Fisher for Richard Burton? Uh, what's, what's the difference? I think the fact that we go to the B-word, where we'd use the A-word for men, 
is indicative of of a, a kind of residual sexism. Uh, that again, these words can make known in a way that other words can't, because we'll we'll very quickly revise our use of gal or girls or something like that, knowing that that's not that's not the way we do it now, where these other words go more deeply to our actual feelings. Well, as Bono once said, uh, Jeffrey, having you on the show was really. Awesome. Um, Jeffrey Nunberg's uh, great, uh, trenchant, uh, fascinating book is called Ascent of the A-Word, A-Holism, the First 60 Years. He spells it out. I, I, I can only have so many beeps in one radio show. Uh, Jeffrey, thank, thanks for coming back on uh, Bullseye. Thanks. Every week we close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. Bill Burr is ferocious. He's a skinny man. His hair is not much longer than the stubble on his face. He's not that tall. But Bill Burr isn't scared of you. He isn't scared of anybody. If you don't know, Burr's a comic out of L.A. by way of Boston. He has the edge of a white guy who came up playing black clubs in a mostly segregated city. Practically everything he says is a challenge. Nice to be here in uh, Philadelphia. I took your subways today. I give the urine smell and I give it an eight. It's the most disgusting I've ever smelled in my life. One of the best moments of stand-up I ever saw came courtesy of Bill Burr. It was a benefit show for a literacy charity. Burr came on after a dog act. An absolutely amazing dog act. Little dogs, all mutts, all adopted, doing just the most spectacular things. I never thought I would love an animal act on a comedy show. But this dog act, it was tremendous. So Bill came out after these rescue dogs, which is nobody's idea of a good act to follow. And then he opened, opened with a bit, the premise of which was no one has ever rescued a dog. He basically dared the audience, try not to laugh at this. And I got to be honest with you, he killed. I got a dog recently, everybody. That's like the big thing. Yes, I did. I'm psyched. I went down to the pound. I got one of those free dogs. Free dog. That's how I say it, too. I don't say I rescued a dog. I hate when people say that stuff. They say, she's a rescue. I rescued her. Really? Did you pull her out of a burning building? Did you jump in a river with your wingtips still on with no concern for your own safety? Or did you just go down to the pound and get a free dog and she f***ed? Isn't that what you did? I actually, I did not want to get a rescue dog. I did not want to do that. My girl was all about it. She's like, we should rescue a dog. You want to rescue a dog? I'm like, no, no, I don't. She's like, why not? I go, because I think a lot of the dogs down the pound might be a little in the head. You ever thought about that? So what's amazing about this bit is that it starts out being about self-righteous people, about other people besides Bill Burr, and about poking holes in their puffery. And it ends up being about basically a man figuring out how to love. I don't know what happened. In four days, I went from this dog to, oh my God, this thing's going to die someday. How am I emotionally going to be able to deal with it? Absolutely. I carry it around like a baby. That's the thing about Bill Burr. He yells and cajoles and screams and rants. But the central thesis of his act isn't what's wrong with other people. It's about Bill trying to be a better man, trying to connect people, connect with people. He has some of the best race material I've ever heard a white comic do, like this bit about what white people don't get. Do you know why so many Caucasians need facelifts? Because we don't know about lotion. See that? Only half of you left. That should have been everybody. Yeah, but a lot of you were sitting there like, well, what about lotion? You dried out. I'm not judging you. I'm not judging anybody. I didn't know anything about lotion. Never used it the first 33 years of my life. Never used it. Till one night I was going out with this black girl, right? She was getting ready and she was just putting that on everywhere. Just slathering it on. I thought she had like a rash or something. I'm like, what are they, like, poison ivy? What's going on with you? She goes, no, I'm just making sure I'm not ashy. I said, ashy? She goes, dry skin. I went, wow. 
I guess I freaked her out a little bit because I was like, ah. She's like, well, white people get ashy too. I was like, yeah, you know, I, I don't think we do. Yeah, I've been alive for 33 years. No one has ever said, hey, Bill, uh, you look a little ashy. I never even heard that word until you said it. She's like, you're an idiot. Stick out your arm. So I stick out my arm, and ever so gently, she just drags her nails down. This smoke starts coming up. It's like pastry flakes flying off, track marks. She's signing her name. She's like, you see that? She goes, that's ashy. You're ashy? Freak me out. I'm like, holy shit, I'm ashy. I didn't know anything about it. All I knew was that I always got itchy in the winter. Burr's new special is on Netflix. It's called You People Are All the Same. The title's sort of a perfect illustration of what he does on stage. The first blush is that You People Are All the Same is about dividing people or basically discarding them, discounting them. But then you figure out that it's about bringing them together, that saying they're all the same is about their commonality. And it's about Burr on stage, a single man in a spotlight, reaching out. So yeah, Bill Burr is ferocious. He's a pit bull. But he's also as sweet as a puppy. That's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Our editor, Nick White. Our interns are Lindsay Pavlis and Tom Pike. And thanks to Lindsay Pavlis for editing our Jeff Nunberg interview. Our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Our thanks to The Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.